0: Email has become more important than the telephone in terms of how it connects all of us. Today, we talk about how it works. Welcome to Copec Explained Software, the podcast where we make computing intelligible.
1: All right, Dave, today we're diving into something I think we're all familiar with on some level, but we're really going to get into the details of how it works. How does email work?
0: You know, email is one of the first things I explored when I was learning programming as a tween, early teenager. I wrote a very simple email client. And it's actually amazing how simple the protocols behind email really are at a basic level. Even a 12 or 13-year-old who knows a little bit of code can write a very simple email client that uses these protocols to send a message.
1: So I guess let's just start at the very beginning. What does email stand for?
0: Email stands for electronic mail. And the idea, of course, is that It is a comparison to traditional letters being sent in the mail, but they're being sent instantaneously electronically.
1: And you've used email client. So what do you mean by client?
0: So a client is a program that connects to an email server, and it will do one of two things. It will either send a message through the server or it will retrieve messages from the server. And there are two different protocols for that, and we'll get into those a little bit later.
1: When did we all start using email? When did it become so popular and ubiquitous?
0: The concept of email was invented in the 1960s, but the protocols that we use were invented in the 1970s. And email didn't really become popular and used by a wide variety of people beyond people on these early networks until the 1980s. And it didn't really get commercialized and used by just regular people until the 1990s. So, of course, it kind of followed the trajectory of the general internet where we first had the ARPANET and other networks that were exclusive to the military and universities. And then we saw in the 80s and the 90s commercial networks and eventually an open commercial internet. And email was following right along. But the protocols that we use today were actually defined as early as the 1970s and refined in the decades that followed that.
1: Can you talk a bit about what the protocols are and how they work?
0: Yeah, and we talked a little bit about them in our previous episode called How Does the Internet Work? So people should definitely check that episode out if they don't even understand the basics of what a protocol is or what TCPIP is before we get into the details in this episode. Anyway, the main protocols used in email are called SMTP, POP3, and IMAP. SMTP stands for Simple Mail Transport Protocol. And it's the protocol that's used for actually creating a message that gets onto the network to be sent to other email servers. So it's the transport protocol, as the name implies. And it's used for transferring an email message from one server to another. Then the other two protocols, POP3, which is the older one, and IMAP, which is the a bit newer one, are used for actually retrieving messages. So therefore, when you connect to a server and you say, get me all my latest email, I want to see what my latest unread messages are, and then allows you to download them. There are also proprietary email protocols as well. For example, one popular proprietary protocol is called Microsoft Exchange, and it's what Microsoft uses in its email servers and also in, of course, Outlook, its email client product. Although Outlook can also use these other protocols to connect to open standard email servers. So, SMTP. POP3 and IMAP are so standardized, though, that basically every email server supports them, and basically every email client supports them, and they're open standards that anyone can adopt.
1: Well, I remember, I guess don't haven't had to do this so much anymore, but when I was first setting up email on my phone, um, you used to have to know which one of those your, your email was, but you don't really need to know that so much anymore.
0: Right, because everyone today is basically using commercialized services that are provided by somebody like Google or Microsoft. And all the email clients today, at least the popular ones, have built-in support for knowing how to connect to those servers. But if you were configuring an email client even just a decade ago, it was very common to have to go into the settings and specify, well, what is the SMTP server? What is the POP3 server that your organization uses? And having to know even what port it was on and um, all those sort of technical details. But so many people today just connect to these commercial services and their email, even for their organization, is often hosted by Google or Microsoft. And so we don't have to worry as much about putting these configuration details in and knowing exactly what the server type is and what port it's on.
1: So I write an email, say I'm sending, I want to send you a note. In the middle of the day, send you an email, a reminder of something to do, maybe. Where does it go once I hit send? How does it, you know, where is it traveling to?
0: So you'll be writing that email in your mail user agent, your MUA. And that might be something like the web client to Gmail, or that might be Apple Mail, that the program Apple Mail, that might be Microsoft Outlook, whatever it is. You write your email, and then your email gets sent over to an SMTP server, a Simple Mail Transport Protocol server. And that's probably going to be, for a lot of people listening to this, a server run by Google, but it might be a server run by Apple or Microsoft or a server run just by your organization. It will receive that email, and then it will do what's called relaying. It'll take that message and relay it to another SMTP server. Now, that next server might not yet be at the destination, It might have to hop through a few different SMTP servers till it gets to the destination. Those in-between servers are called MTAs, Mail Transport Agents. They're taking your email message and transporting it along the way till it gets to its destination. Once it gets to its destination, it'll be received by another SMTP server acting as what's called an MDA, a Mail Delivery Agent and it'll be putting it in some specific area of disk, a mailbox that's designated just for you. Then you wanna read the email, the other person. The other person now wants to read the email. They're gonna to connect to their email server using POP3 or IMAP, those um, mailbox protocols, those connections or download your email protocols, or a proprietary one like Microsoft Exchange. They'll be connecting to that server and it might even be a web client that they're using. So it could be a web interface that's making that connection. But anyway, they'll, they'll connect to that server and then they will download their latest unread messages and then they'll be able to view it. If they reply to the email, then it's again an SMTP process going through simple mail transport protocol to send the message back to you. And then when you receive their reply, you'll again be downloading it using a POP3 or IMAP or Microsoft Exchange connection to download your latest messages. So, there's one protocol for sending, is one way of thinking about it, and another protocol for downloading your latest messages.
1: And our messages, our emails, are going on quite a journey.
0: Right. So, they could be hopping over many different servers before they get to their destination. And it's important to note that email is not required to be encrypted. And most servers, SMTP servers, those servers that are transporting the the messages, also, a lot of them do not require even encrypted connections let alone that the emails themselves are encrypted. So people should know that a lot of our email, as it's hopping around, actually can be transported in plain text, which means that email is not a way to send secure information unless you know for sure that you're encrypting the message ahead of time and it's being decrypted when it's being downloaded. Uh, and we talked about encryption, actually, in our last episode, what is encryption. But yes, email is absolutely a standard that supports plain text, and was originally only plain text. And so for historical purposes, all email servers pretty much still support just plain text, unencrypted plain text. And so email is not a particularly secure way to send information, and people should be aware of that.
1: So there's plain text formats, but then there's also another format, right?
0: Yeah, there's also what's called MIME. And the problem is that the original version of email used ASCII, and we talked about ASCII on our previous episode, um, What is a Text Encoding? We've had a lot of previous mm-hmm. episodes already. and People can listen to those previous emails episodes if they want a lot more details. But anyway, ASCII is a text encoding that was originally intended only for the Latin alphabet, which includes English, of course, but doesn't include most foreign languages and also doesn't include a lot of other interesting data we might want to send, like images, for example. So... Another new format beyond just ASCII that email started supporting is called MIME. And MIME stands for Multipurpose Internet Mail Extensions. And it allowed for a much wider variety of data, including binary data, to be sent. And modern email clients and newer standards started supporting UTF-8, which goes beyond just ASCII and can support other languages as well and other text encodings as well. So modern email, we can send basically whatever we want. A lot of the text we end up sending through email, though, is actually HTML. Hmm. HTML, as we know, again, from a previous episode, Mm -hmm. how does the web work, is the language that we use for defining web pages on the World Wide Web. So every time you use a web browser, you're downloading HTML documents. But what you might not have realized is that your mail client is also an HTML interpreter. It's also downloading HTML documents, i.e. your email messages, and rendering them. So you could think about it as your mail client is actually almost like a mini web browser. Mm -hmm. It knows how to render HTML. And the reason that we started supporting HTML as a mail format and sending it in text and then rendering that HTML is because it allowed for richer layout and display of messages. So every time you see a really cool message you get from some company that has all kinds of great formatting and everything laid out in a really great way, um, that's probably actually an HTML message that you're receiving that actually um, is just being rendered as it would be rendered in your web browser.
1: Even though it's being rendered in HTML, when I'm writing my email, I don't have to know HTML. I'm just you know, writing how I would.
0: Right. Okay. So, so your mail clients, whether, again, whether that be Gmail on the web or that be Apple Mail or Microsoft Outlook, it knows how, to, when you start using formatting options, how to insert that HTML behind the scenes. So it renders it to you without showing any of the HTML tags. Mm -hmm. But behind the scenes, it's inserting HTML tags. And then when your message is sent, it's actually sent as HTML. And then when the other person receives it, they're never seeing the tags either. Their client is just automatically rendering it.
1: So now I've received my email, let's say, and I get lots of emails, all different ones. Some are from people I want to read emails from and some is just like, junk or spam. How does my email client or my my email server figure that all out?
0: So email is actually a really open protocol. SMTP servers, most of them, will relay almost any message. And SMTP used to be even more open. You go back a couple decades ago, spammers were able to exploit email servers to basically send emails to anybody, anytime. And this, of course, led to a huge problem with junk mail. Now, a lot of servers have gotten a little bit smarter about it. They will mark a server that mail is being received from that happens to have a lot of previous spam as a server that it should no longer accept mail from. And there is now some uh, some very basic encryption standards on the domain side so that we can verify whether or not email is coming from a known valid email domain. So a domain that has, been, has a signature, an encrypted signature that we know is legitimate. So email servers have gotten a little bit better at being able to distinguish between good sources and bad sources of email. That said, it's still a very open protocol. And so, of course, all of us get a lot of spam all the time. And, you know, there's been various interesting schemes of people trying to figure out ways to reduce the spam. In fact, some people even propose that there be a tax on email. Even if there was just a hundredth of a penny tax on every email that was sent, that would make a lot of spammers who try to just get people by sending literally millions of messages and hoping that just a few people are dumb enough to click on the links, uh, it would actually put them out of business. So there have been schemes like that thought up. But really, what's improved email more than anything are improved spam filters.
1: So how does this filter actually work? How, do they, how does my email know that this is a bad email? Or I guess, even more important in some ways, how does it know when something is a good or important message?
0: So there's a lot of different statistical and machine learning techniques that are involved in creating spam filters. For people who've taken an advanced statistics class, you might be familiar with the idea of Bayesian analysis. And so there, are, and that's actually a pretty simple kind of statistical analysis. And that simple statistical analysis, a lot of times, is actually good enough. It doesn't require um, a huge amount of processing power to do a Bayesian spam filter. And that can actually work quite well. But we have very sophisticated spam filters today too. And we have things that work on everything from, um, from a basic Bayesian analysis to neural networks. So, and we've talked a little bit about neural networks again on a previous episode, our episode on artificial intelligence. But anyway, uh, so we use basically statistical analysis with a little bit of machine learning. And machine learning really is just very sophisticated statistical analysis to try to figure out, Is this email message spam or is this email message something that we actually want the user to see? Now, there's two different ways that this analysis happens. Sometimes it happens based on a wide variety of prior email messages just out there in general. So by learning from just tons of previous cases to everybody. But there's also spam filters that learn specifically from the email that you've received. Because what you might consider spam might actually be different from what somebody else might consider spam. And so in a lot of modern email clients, when you mark a message as spam, what you're actually doing is you're training that spam filter. So you're teaching it and it's becoming a little bit better through a machine learning technique at identifying messages that you think about as spam and you think about as not spam. So at the same token, it is a good idea to occasionally check your spam folder and see if that filter is actually learned the wrong way and started putting some messages that you actually wanted into your spam folder. I think it happens to all of us sometimes. And so by going in there and then actually specifically marking something that was marked as spam as not spam, you're actually training the filter to in the future not mark those messages as spam. So it's important to not just go read that message in your spam folder, but actually to go into the spam folder and mark the message as not spam. So that you are improving the filter and getting it to be more accurate in the future with messages that you receive, and the same thing the opposite way too. It's important when you really get a message that you know is spam that got into your inbox. Don't just delete it. Mark it as spam. So that the spam filter continues to get trained.
1: I think that where we rely on email so much in in all of our work and everything that we're you know that we're doing um, in our our day to day lives, it can be easy to miss. All, the, all that's going on behind the scenes to make it happen and how useful it is.
0: Yeah, I think email is really a very underappreciated technology because it's the universal social network. It's the first technology that has connected everybody on earth absolutely for free. What I mean by that is even to make a phone call to somebody in a foreign country, you usually have to pay some kind of you know, surcharge or some some amount of limited minutes etc etc email is absolutely free it costs nothing to send that's why it gets so exploited by spammers and scammers of course but that's also what's so beautiful about it and it's an open standard so it's not controlled by anybody when you go and post a message on twitter or on facebook facebook or twitter might censor you but more worse than that they actually control who sees that message And then you also are basically submitting it to them to be in their database so that they can use it in ways that you might not have intended, including collecting information on you. What's beautiful about email is that, first of all, it's not just controlled by one provider. Unfortunately, not because it's a bad service, but just because it's so big, Gmail has come to be such a large provider of email that I wouldn't quite call it a monopoly, of course, because there's plenty of alternatives, but it's become a dominant force in email. And that's unfortunate because it means one company controls a large portion of what used to be a very, very open ecosystem. At the same time, it is still an open ecosystem. Anyone can go and start a mail server and then start sending messages to other people. There are issues today about Gmail rejecting new email email servers. And what that means is that if I go and create a new email server, Gmail might be a little wary of it because it's never heard of it before. And then they're rejecting my messages going out to my customers or to my friends. And there's nothing I can do about it because they're so powerful. It's hard to get around once they put you on a list that says this is not a good email server. Anyway, but it is an open standard. And anyone can create a mail server. And anyone can send a message to anyone else. And that's a beautiful thing. And it's probably the most open and um, easily accessible technology in communications that the world has ever had. And so the reason I'm going on this long tangent is I just think it's very underappreciated. I've especially noticed that amongst young people. So people that are, let's say, less than 20 years old, they don't really realize like how magical it is to have email versus what the world was like when we were growing up, when people were just, it was just getting commercialized. The commercial internet was just coming out of the 90s and people were just starting to have email, but before that, communicating with somebody else meant you had to somehow like call them at the right time when they happen to be home. Um, so email is so beautiful; it's so open. It enables so much communication, and I think that um, we've s- s- people in the last few years have started to go more and more into proprietary technologies. We think about things like Slack or things like Facebook or Twitter, or just all the messaging services that have popped up. And they're all just controlled by a single entity, whereas email is not yet controlled by anybody unless Gmail keeps growing. (laughs) So I think we need to really preserve that. I think we need to cherish that. And we need to appreciate just how much it's done for the world. And we should be training people, I think, to be better at managing and using their email instead of continually sending them off to new proprietary messaging services.
1: Yeah, I think it's such an important and necessary skill in this day and age is to manage your inbox, to really appreciate your, your emails. And um, there's, you know, there's the meme, right? Like this meeting could have been an email, but and we say that a lot, and it's really true because email is such a powerful tool and is really useful.
0: And it's built on such simple open standards. Like I said, when I was a tween, I was already writing a simple email client and I wasn't a very good programmer. Um, And so the fact that they are open, easy to understand standards means that it's possible for people to continue innovating with them and creating new email clients and new email servers. And so I think that's also something to appreciate is just what an open standard is. So it's not just ubiquitous, but it's also open. And that's not true about any of the messaging services for the most part that have been really popular that have come after it.
1: Well, thanks so much for teaching us all about email. Is there anything else we should know?
0: Not to be too harsh on Google because Gmail is a great service and it works really well. But at the same time, the last thing that I worry about with email is the idea of somebody reading your messages, of course, right? And it's great that nowadays most of our connections to email servers using any modern server and modern client usually are actually an encrypted connection, even if the messages themselves aren't encrypted. But at the same time, knowing that one server, one entity one company has access to all of your emails is concerning to me. So my last thing is it would be a call for people to try using an alternative email service. And, you know, there are new email services popping up. A couple of the ones that are famous are Hey.com, ProtonMail. Uh, There's a few more that have been popular the last few years, some, some that are a bit older, that really just emphasize their privacy focus. They promise to you that we're not reading your email. When you use Gmail, you even see advertisements in it. Those advertisements are based on the contents of your emails. And that doesn't mean that they're actually storing the contents. Of course, they tell you, of course, they're storing them. But I mean, that, that doesn't mean that they're actually like permanently storing info about you from your emails. But we have no way of knowing that because it's a proprietary software company. We have no way of knowing what they're actually doing behind the scenes with our email data. And I'm not saying they're doing anything bad, but just the idea that they could be and that they don't emphasize that as, a, as their focus and that they actually do show us advertisements in our emails is concerning to me. And so I would encourage people to create an email account with an alternative service so that we don't let one company dominate this open platform. All right. Well, thanks for listening. It's been great having you this week. And I want to remind people about our Twitter account. What's our Twitter handle, Rebecca?
1: At Kopec Explains, K-O-P-E-C-E-X-P-L-A-I-N-S.
0: And I also want to remind you to hit that subscribe button to make sure that you're getting all of our latest episodes. We come out with new episodes every Monday morning. And also leave us a review on your podcast player of choice, whether that be Overcast or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Podcasts, whatever you're listening to this on right now or CastBox. We've had a lot of new listeners on CastBox. Leave us a review or press that little star button to favorite this episode. It really helps other people find out about our show. and We really appreciate that. And we look forward to seeing you again next week.
1: Thanks for listening.